it's been the weirdest thing. When we first moved here, our neighbors were like, nah, it never snows. We've been here five years. It snowed every single winter. Y'all ready? Gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Raj Nation Innovations Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, aka the Raj Nation. I am your show's host, the founder of Raj Nation Innovation, as well as a hip hop artist and a yoga instructor. Above all else, I am a storyteller. And I am joined by my co host, Victoria Cohen. Victoria is the voice behind the blog almondsandasana.com. She is a fellow yogi and a community activist focused on helping you make lifestyle choices that positively impact you and the people you serve. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. Is real talk with real people doing real big things to uncover the real side of success. Now, before we dive into today's conversation, I would like to extend an invitation if you are not a member already. Join our tribe by going to discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Enter your email address there, and you will never miss another episode of the show, getting a notification in your inbox every single Monday when we launch a new episode. You'll also get my stories, advice, and tips throughout the month on how you as a startup can make your pitch a performance. All right, let's dive in now to our conversation on today's episode of Discover Your Inner Awesome. Welcome, everybody, to the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. Today on the show, we have Josh Carter. Josh joins us as interim CEO of Patriot Bootcamp and former founder and CEO of Brightwork.io. Josh, thank you for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So our topic today is how do you define your audience? I know you have a lot of experience with this, but tell our listeners why this is on your mind and why this is important to you. Well, it's, it's important because, uh, you know, if you don't define your audience, you don't know where you're targeting, right? So if, uh, you know, th- th- you build out this persona of what your ideal customer is, um, and if you don't go through that exercise, you're really just sort of throwing darts at a wall. And so it's really important to understand your customer, who it is, and how you're going to reach them. So let's take it into your own personal experience then. You, again, we mentioned you're now interim CEO of Patriot Bootcamp, but prior to that, you founded and were CEO of Brightwork.io, which was a company, and correct me if I'm wrong here, if I get the description wrong, but essentially built around allowing developers to create a, to, to develop apps in a more lean and scalable way through an API platform. Is that right? That's right. We took all of the things that you hate to do on your infrastructure side of things, like spinning up an EC2 bucket or an S3 or you know, doing email configuration. We did all that for the customer and provided an infrastructure platform uh, similar to a, a SaaS-based model. Uh, and it, it enabled uh, the developer to just t- simply tie in their front end using a RESTful endpoint and saved their development time by 70%. Okay, great. So... Let's kind of take it back to the start then. Brightwork.io starts. You, de- you decide you're going to start this company. What are you doing in life at that point? And then how does the idea even come about? 
Sure. So I was an early employee at Twilio. Um, we had uh, we were about sixty people at the time, and uh, and around the same time I started, about a year after, I created a digital agency on the side called Plunk, and we were building apps for companies like Disney and Pabst Blue Ribbon, and and doing um, you know various different application solutions for different companies. And, and the the consistent thing that kept happening was that we would have to build these backend solutions over and over every single time the same way. So we knew there had to be a better way to solve this problem. And since we were a services company, we wanted to find a way to develop a product that would help sustain our business long term. So we actually created Brightwork out of the original digital marketing agency and spun that out as a separate business. Um, We got a few alpha customers and that put us through Techstars. Once we got into Techstars, we all quit our day jobs and went full-time with this business. So we went through Techstars uh, with this business and create and opened our uh, open beta while we were in the program. Now, you've got the you've gone through the Techstars accelerator, and for those listening who aren't familiar, Techstars is a startup accelerator that they. Um, well, I guess they, they accelerate startups, for lack of better phrasing. <laughs> that's, that's a great way to put it, absolutely. <laughs> it, you know, and, and this is what I, well, I will tell people. You know, if, you've, if you have any military folks listening, it's very much like a boot camp. You have three months. Uh, you know, the boot camp I went through, I'm a Navy vet, was three months as well. Uh, they break you down to build you up the way you're supposed to be operating. So it's a, there are very much parallels, and it's very intensive. Uh, you have mentor madness the first month. You have a lot of programming. So it's very intensive, but you, what you get out of it is a few things. When you get out of a tremendous network you didn't have before, and you have the tools within your tool belt to figure out how to solve problems in a more efficient way. So um, out of curiosity, to so sort of break down a little bit more about what the, the sort of brief synopsis you just gave of, of um, sort of what was happening. So before that, you said you were, you were in um, the Navy? That's right. And then how long had you been out and, you know, working and sort of in the startup environment before you started that, you know, the your side hustle of that digital yeah. agency? <laughs> yeah, it was probably uh, you know, almost 10 years. So okay. I'd been I'd been in the telecom community for a long time. I'd been an engineer in the telecom space for, you know, a number of years. I'd started okay. as I was crawling under houses and climbing up telephone poles and then eventually <laughs> led to working in cloud, which was Twilio. So uh, I sort of jokingly say if there was an evolutionary chart of telecommunications, I've literally worked every step of it. That's so cool. That's crazy. But I think that's like an interesting thing to to know because sometimes it seems like, oh, these things just like happen overnight and like they don't. <laughs> you know, those skills take a long time to learn. <laughs> Well, that's and, right. and then that, that's a, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you asked that, Victoria, because how does one go from climbing telephone poles <laughs> yeah, to exactly. starting their own company? <laughs> yeah, uh, You know, it's, it's weird. So um, I have, I've always been a very creative person. I've always wanted to try to figure out how to create something. And so it started with uh, we were booking concerts in the Bay Area uh, for friends of ours. And so that's how I started doing, like, quote-unquote, businesses. And um, and the way it started was a friend of mine I went to high school with, he was having trouble getting gigs in the San Francisco Bay Area. It was just really hard. So we pretended that I was his booking agent. And so I would call <laughs> venues and pretend like I was his booking agent and get him gigs that way. And eventually, bands caught on that I was doing this. And so other bands would approach me, hey, can you do this for me as well? And eventually it led to sort of like this thing that we did, uh, 
the crescendo to that was we created a festival and I lost a tremendous amount of money. So my wife was like, we can't do this anymore. You have to find something else to do. So I moved into doing internet radio. So I did internet radio for four or five years. And, and the conversation around it was where people thought the music industry was going to head. And so we had people like George Clinton. We had Imagine Dragons, Margaret Cho, Henry Rollins on the show weekly just talking about where people thought the music industry was heading. And so the Plunk, the digital agency, the specific goal, objective of that was to bridge the gap between the music industry and technology. Because I was going to all these talks and musicians were just feeling jaded that the music industry and the tech industry weren't playing nice. You know, Apple had just bought Beats for $3 billion. And if you ask musicians, they didn't benefit from that, even though it was their product being sold. And so musicians still felt abandoned by technology. So when we did Plunk, we built it to solve that problem. So we built a site for Taco Bell called FeedTheBeat.com, and it was a I program that, that. Ta- yeah, it was a it was a program that Taco Bell built to help up and coming bands. Well, we built that platform for Taco Bell, and um, and so everything that I've done on the side has led to the next thing, right? So. Brightwork was because we kept building these solutions and we needed to figure out a, uh, a way to m- build these solutions faster. Um, the the radio thing was because I lost so much money booking shows. So there's a there's a, a deliberate step to everything I've done. Yeah, I like that, and I, I, it it kind of helps paint the picture a little bit more clear. But I'm curious to know now, like, so you go from booking to internet radio <laughs> to yeah. plunk. Was this all on the side of while you were climbing these telephone poles? (laughs) 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 Or moving through that career, at least? Yeah, a lot of times it was. And because, you know, I wasn't making, I have a family, I'm a a father of three kids. So, you know, the realistic part of of growing a business is that you still have to make money somewhere. So, yeah, I would have a day job and um, I was doing very well. I I would still get promotions in in the jobs that I was in and still able to sort of build out these businesses on the side as well. So from that transition from Plunk and spinning out Brightwork, you're getting – Brightwork takes you away from music. Was that intentional and how did you feel about that? Because it seems like music is a pretty big passion of yours. Yeah, it did take me away from it. But, you know, uh, it's such an interesting intersect between technology and every other industry that's out there. You know, so I jokingly say that every company out there is a tech company because if they don't, they just don't figure out how to grow and scale. And so, um, you know, even though we were moving away from being in the music industry per se, we were still touching that in in the customers that we were dealing with. So I, I think this is a great transition to talk about how you find your ideal customer because for Brightwork, it was a struggle for us. We knew the pain point we were solving and who the customer could be, but we identified way too many use cases. So we tried to chase so many down. So we knew that digital marketing agencies needed this, but we knew that developers would benefit from this as well. So we were a team of two chasing our tail in three different directions. Okay, so take us through then the early days of Brightwork. And, and I will say, by the way, I do, I do like that you've pointed out here that each thing was a deliberate step or that each past experience helped shape the next experience because uh, that's something that I think a lot of founders ignore where they think if it's not directly related to the startup they're doing now, it doesn't count. But that's really important in being able to tell your story, especially like to an investor 
when they want to know who are you as a person. Like, that's interesting stuff to be able to say, like, I was an internet radio host within the music industry. Because it shows, you know, where you think and it shows your, your train of thought and how you bring in that mindset to bright work. Yeah, and well, how you saw, how you discovered certain problems you needed that needed to be solved. Yeah, I got like the history of problem problem solving almost <laughs> yeah. in your own life. <laughs> yeah, and I and I think the most successful companies out there are because a founder or somebody was pained by something and they wanted to solve that problem, right? So if you think about Uber, they were just sick of the cumbersome taxi industry. If you think about Twilio, Jeff Lawson was sick of tired, sick and tired of paying hundreds of thousands for these monolithic boxes that couldn't do anything, right? So if you think about some of the companies that are big today, you think about these pains that they were dealing with and they just wanted to solve that pain point and lower the friction for everybody. And so that was what we were attempting to do with Brightwork was lower the friction so that when people wanted to build these applications, they could do so in a more efficient manner. So we get into the Brightwork days now. You talked about you and your co-founder chasing their tail or chasing your tails. Yeah. You have the digital marketing audience and you have the, was it the just independent app developer audience? That's right. Yeah, okay. just developers that maybe they had a few clients and they wanted to build an app for their clients and this would help ease their burden. Okay. So before we get into the market separation, let's talk about what was the business model for Brightwork? How were you planning to make money? And in your early days, you're looking at it, you know, everyone, every company throws out their projections that are pretty, you know, more art than they are science. Yeah. <laughs> um, what were your yeah. like early projections? And then what was the business model to ideally achieve those? Yeah, I think we didn't really have a, a really good idea of what our projections would be. And it's funny, <laughs> looking back now, it's sort of, it's for, sort of a comedy that we, put some sort of projection in our deck for investors. Like we were going to make 50,000 the first quarter and then a hundred thousand the next quarter. We were stupid. We, there's no way we're going to do that because we haven't even mapped out our monetization yet. So we were, um, we were a SaaS based model. So you would pay for the amount of API calls you would make per month. So if you think of the way an application works, um, if you have an API for some sort of say SMS for Twilio, right? Every time you make a call to that, uh, API, we would be able to charge you for that transaction. So same thing with uh, MailChimp or Mandrill or whatever mail service you use. Every time you made it an API request back to our platform, we can um, register that and um, and sort of use that as the benchmark for how much we were going to charge you. Um, the, the challenge there, though, became mapping all the different services we were providing in the back end um, and enabling us to charge efficiently. And so that was the biggest challenge for us. We, we made our billing model way too complicated for our own good. Well, uh, first off, on the projections front, um, it's funny how you mentioned like, yeah, 50,000 Q1, 100,000 Q2. One of the companies that I'm working with right now, I was talking to them the other day, and 2018 projection was like 2 million in revenue. And I'm like, okay, we're almost in March. <laughs> well, I guess by the time this episode comes out, it is March, right? And... Yeah. I'm like, okay, so we're at the end of quarter one here, or we're hitting the end of quarter one here, and you said $2 million and 53 customers, and right now you have four, maybe five customers. How do you plan to get the next 49 and reach that $2 million by the end of this year? And it's kind of like a, oh, crap, like we don't have a sales <laughs> strategy moment, right? And that's, yeah. like, that's how you get away from the art and more into the science and really just like the straight math of things and knowing what you need to focus your time on. So 
when you when you look at that breakdown in your own company of or breakout rather in your own company of like fifty thousand and then a hundred thousand, and you said like there was complications in the billing. Did you have in your mind like a real path to getting there, or was it more like, hey, we'll build this thing, people will want it, and money will happen? Yeah, so that was uh, so five years ago. I would say that's absolutely the way to go, right? You build some sort of platform, you get a, a critical mass of people, and then at some point you figure out how to monetize that. Investors don't want to see that anymore, especially from first-time founders. They, you know, I was even told from investors, uh, good friends of mine who ran great large firms in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, this was about two years ago. Look, if you had five customers paying you one month, and you had seven customers paying you the next month and another 10 paying you the next month, I could scrape together a $3 million angel round. They just want to see that you can iterate on the success of having somebody pay you. Look, a business is a hypothesis until someone gives you money for it. That's the day it becomes a business. So that's investors don't want to, don't want to invest in a hypothesis. They want to invest in businesses that show some sort of substa- substantial growth. And so if you can, even at the... This is what I wish we would have done in the first day one. I wish we would have turned on monetization before we even gave it to one person. Because then we can we can measure the value they're getting out of it. Now, we did get one customer to pay us, and they built an app for Taylor Swift for the Super Bowl, which was amazing. They, they built the app in two days. They had Taylor Swift's team approve it. We processed 250,000 API calls in a 30-day period, and they absolutely loved it. Um, but again, it went back to we could either focus on developers or we can focus on business customers we can't focus on both and so that was our challenge and ultimately led to our demise because what when what ended up happening is we ran out of cash before we could figure that problem out Mm. and um and so that's what founders really have to be careful of is if you don't identify a customer one customer one type of customer persona and you're not out there beating the drum to get them to pay for you then you're going to run out of runway very quickly. And maybe you don't. Maybe you have a great golden parachute or you have rich parents that can keep it going. <laughs> like, you know, you, you have, you're the Taylor Swift of startups, and that's mm-hmm. awesome. But for the 99% that don't, you need to figure out from day one how to get somebody to pay, pay for, your, uh, for your services so that you can measurably uh, show that the next person will pay. And, and how you show that uh, is super important. So why was it that you guys couldn't decide who your audience was sort of between these two categories of people that you felt like you were trying to provide services for? What was what was the holdup? What was was it just that you couldn't pick one or was it not a clear distinction of who was going to be the more profitable audience to go after? Like what was why why was that difficult? Um, I think we were it was just an it, a case of us being too early. I, I think we went through Techstars way too early. If I had to do over again, I would have waited until we had a few paying customers, and we did figure that out. I think um, we just, what our issue was, is we had a, a business customer that came to us and said, I would love to use this for our business, um, but we were we were focused on developers at the time. So we did have a single focus, but what distracted us mm-hmm. was having a business customer say, I find this profoundly valuable, I would love to use this for our business. How can we figure this out? So it distracted us in a way and then led us down this path of like, okay, well, that makes sense. Let's go find another business customer because we found one already. And then we should also kind of focus on the developers on the right side over here because we know that they'll find a develop- the developers will find it valuable. Um, again, it was just, 
it was a distraction by accident for us. Yeah, that's so interesting because it probably at the beginning when someone came along that was not your initial target audience but saw um, an application for your services, it was probably really exciting. Like, oh, wow, there's this whole other realm that we didn't even realize we could <laughs> tap into. And, you know, it's, I mean, I, that's kind of what I imagine it would be like. But so interesting that that maybe could actually, even though it might present itself as like a really great building opportunity, that it may actually be the thing that that hurts you. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. And and what I tell founders now is that, you know, when you look back at Amazon, Jeff Bezos said we were going to be the we're going to be the biggest bookstore in the world. He didn't say we're going to be the biggest bookstore and we're going to drop stuff on people's houses with drones and we're going to create virtual servers and we're going to. No, he said, I'm going to be the biggest bookstore in the world. And when he was, he moved on to the next thing. Right. And so I think that's what founders need to look at is how can they solve a really simple problem? Um, get it in the hands of someone that will pay for it, and then keep iterating on that success. Yeah, it's it's smart, progressive growth, not trying to do it all at once. And my, you know, my own experience with this, my last company, Idea Lemon, our downfall, and there were a couple of reasons for the downfall, but I would say the biggest reason was that we also we were in like audience paralysis mode. And you know, Victoria, earlier you were like, how you know, like what is it that made you not be able to choose? And, Josh, you let me know if this is um, your mindset as well, but for us at the time, so we had developed this online course. Uh, it took us a while to figure out like what the product was going to be, though, and, and what we were going to be selling. And in that time, we had built up this audience of several different types of people. Um, if you were to boil it down to like a top three, though, the audience we had was people who were... And, and the online course was for personal branding, okay? Yep. The audience we had developed, if you... If you pared it down, it was three different audiences. It was people who wanted a new job because they hated their current job, people who liked their job but wanted to move up in their company, and entrepreneurs. And what we did was we created this personal branding course, but we couldn't answer personal branding for whom. And when we did answer it, it was for job changers, move up in your current company, and entrepreneurs. The problem is that is three, even if like the what do you call it? The strategies are the same. That's three very distinct messages and three very different sales strategies that have to be implemented. But we tried to put it all into one. And then if you looked at like our sales page, like how, like, you know, how we did the sales we did, I don't know. Like, I think we just got by on the fact that we had good personalities and people wanted to like be involved (laughs) with what we were doing. But it was like, you know, we'd show like, uh, hey, this person had six, we had like these like beta uh, customers who went through it and we'd be like, this person had success. He got featured on this podcast, which has a reach of this, and may you know got uh, a new job with uh, a twenty thousand dollars salary increase. And then like beneath that, we like, <laughs> and this person got accepted into MIT's accelerator for her startup idea. And I'm like, yeah. looking back, it's like, what what random person would read this and be like, oh, this is for me because it's for everyone, which it's never the case, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. The red flag for me should have been when we were trying to create two different sites for two for two different audiences. Mm. I, looking back, I, if you're trying to create a different website for a different audience, right, then that's a red flag. You're, you're trying to boil the ocean here, and, uh, and you're not going after one target audience. And so that should have been a red flag for us, looking back now, like Monday morning quarterbacking this thing. Like, we should not have created two different sites for two different customer seg- segments. And, it, and I'm glad you point that out because some companies will be like, well, we're just going to test and see which one does better. 
But man, <laughs> oh. just, just test one first. Yeah. If that doesn't work, then test the other one. Because <laughs> the yeah, worst we, thing that happens is you get a little bit of success in both. Because then it just confuses what you do next. Absolutely. We had a great mentor who is a coworker of mine. His name's John Sheehan. Ran uh, RunScope, which is an API testing tool, and he, he gave us a great, uh, great advice. He said, "Look, you you have you. There will always be." A thousand customers to piss off. Don't worry. You could cycle through the next thousand, piss those people off because there'd be another thousand right behind them. Mm. So don't worry about it. Just get your product out, find things that work. When they released their product, um, they didn't have API testing as one of their things on their roadmap. But when they released their product, more customers were coming back to them saying, Hey, what I would love to be able to test my API. And at some point, it became like the majority of what was bringing in revenue. So when you when I say focus on customers, that's why it's so important because the customers will drive what they find valuable out of your platform and will ultimately get some sort of value out of it. Now they got acquired by CA Technologies and uh, they're doing very well. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I'm just thinking I had a similar conversation to this when I so I started a blog um, a little less than a year ago, and when I um, when I started it, I was talking to a couple of friends of mine and. You know, sort of like, okay, well, on Mondays I'm going to post about this, and Tuesdays I'm going to talk about this, and like all these different things that I like wanted to include in my blog. And one friend was like, you know what? I think, like, scale it down to like just like one or two of those things to start with, and like really focus on those. And then over time, as you build up an audience that's really interested in that, like then maybe you can start to expand a little bit. But if you start like just so broad, it's gonna be a lot harder to capture any sort of like engaged audience than if you start with something like a bit more niche, um, you know, and then eventually build from there. So just interesting kind of re revisiting this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, you know, it's it's one of those things where we had an early advisor that said, um, pick a lane and stick to it, right? So when we created the the um, the platform, we were asked, well, who is this for? And we said developers. Well, that's a stupid answer because there's all kinds of developers, right? There's front end, there's back end, there's JavaScript. And we said, well, okay, fine, web developers. And they said, well, okay, again, that's stupid because you have React, you have all these other different you know, web platforms. And so we said, okay, fine, web JavaScript developers, that's who we're catering. And so we picked a lane. And then afterwards, we, you know, we started to move into iOS and Android doing SDKs. And so it's really important to just sort of, you know, quote, unquote, pick your lane and stay in it until you've found success and you can move out. And it's amazing, too, how much that'll help all the other like little parts, like it helps writing your copy on your website so much if you know exactly like like you said web java developers like you can write different copy for them than you would for like ruby developers that's right yep yeah and that's and that's what helped us um uh, in the early stages of our open beta we released our open beta got great press we were number three on product hunt for the day got a great feature on TechCrunch. i mean we just we crushed it on our opening day and then uh and we i think we got like 500 or so signups in the like first hour and then after that, it just sort of waned, and we started going after developers and business customers, and, and, and that's ultimately where, where the uh, wheels started coming off the bus. <laughs> yeah, my, so you mentioned like you had that two websites moment. Um, for, for my previous company, Idea Lemon, our moment was on a, I think it was a Thursday night, or on, yeah, on a Thursday night, we sponsored a table at this conference that was for um, people who, it was a career fair conference. Yeah. And then on Friday, we sponsored a table at an 
artists and musicians and entrepreneurs <laughs> conference. And then we came back on, on Monday to the office and we were like, what the hell are we doing? Like, that was awful. Like we, we literally, we were on back to back days at two completely different types of conferences and saying our company was two completely different things. Yeah. And we acted like it was okay in the moment, but what the yeah. hell are we doing? So for yeah. your, your two websites moment, is that a looking back or at the time were you like, something's wrong here. And if it wasn't the two websites, was there another point when you said something's wrong here? I mean, for us, the, the something wrong here was we, we ran out of cash. But yeah, I mean, I think looking back, we, you know, we, we kept charging forward. And um, yeah, we, we had some really good mentors that were questioning our, our motives. But I think we were seeing just this flicker of smoke, right? We had a lot of developers that signed up the first day. We had a business customer that approached us because they thought the thing was valuable. So we saw little glimmers of that there was something there. But the problem was it hampered our ability to raise more funds. And so, again, you know, we were out there fundraising. We were trying to go get more customers. We were, we were trying to do content marketing. We were doing uh, blogs. We were going out to CES, and we were going out to Dreamforce. We were just we were doing too much. And as a team of two, it was just really hard to do one thing well. And so at the end of the day, you know, the other thing was you know, when we ran out of cash, my CTO had to go get a job. You know, we both had family, so he had to go find a job. And so that really scuttled our progress as well. Um, I thankfully had a little bit of savings that I can kind of fall back on. But, you know, I spent three or four months trying to find somebody to replace him at, at you know, and it just wasn't successful. We just couldn't. I, and we had lost momentum. So, so it wasn't, it made no sense to keep going with the business at that point. In that process, then, you pull the plug on this company. Now it was a ran out of cash moment, but I'm sure it wasn't bank account hit zero. And then you said, we don't have a company anymore. There was I, my, my guess, correct me if I'm wrong. My guess was there was a, like a ramping down point where you're like, okay, this isn't working. We are running out of cash. Do you remember at which point you said it's time to move on? And can you talk us through what went into that decision, both like from a business standpoint, but even more so like an emotional standpoint? Yeah, so that's that's great that you bring that up because I think a lot of folks don't really talk about the dark side of startups where, you know, it takes a mental toll when you fail. You know, what happens when you fail is that the calls stop coming in, the texts start stop coming in, the emails stop flowing in. You're basically on this island. So for me, um, it was a long path. Um, I fell into deep depression. It was hard for me because as a military vet, um, I, you know, I don't want to let anybody down. I mean, that's just the way I'm built. And I, and I'm also taking friends and family money. So now I have to look these friends and family in the eye and say, they're never going to get their money back. So I, I took that hard. I took that really hard. So there was three, three months where I literally could not get out of bed. And the thing that really got me out of it. And the thing that I finally accepted what was happening was, um, the fact that I just wasn't spending much time with my family, I wasn't um, finding a path to find my happy again, and I wasn't I wasn't accepting of the fact that um, this was over. So when I finally came to that realization, it was easy to move on. I mean, it still hurts. Don't get me wrong. I did a talk at Phoenix Startup Week, and my talk was surviving startup failure. It was a uh, standing room only, and uh, and I heard a bunch of people just tell their stories of failure and how it still hurts. And it does. You don't get over that because 
in my mind, I felt like there is there may still be a play where there's a back end as a service that succeeds really well. And I really thought Brightware could have been that. So I think for me, it was just coming to the realization that I wasn't going to be able to find somebody to replace my CTO. Um, I wasn't going to be able to do it myself. I just didn't have the, the coding chops to do it. And at some point, I needed to move on um, for the sake of my sanity, for the sake of my family, for the sake of my friends, for the sake of my happiness. And so, um, so I go out and I do these talks uh, for Surviving Startup Failure. We do it at Patriot Bootcamp as well. And I think the thing that really kicked me out of my funk was I went to the Patriot Bootcamp in Denver as a mentor. I, w- I hadn't joined the company yet. And we did this with veterans, veterans that had seen combat action in Afghanistan or Iraq and had sat in that room with me and told me their stories of failure and had told me that they felt like killing themselves because of that failure. Now, that hit me like a ton of bricks because I don't know when startup failure eclipsed PTSD as a threat to our veterans. That instantly woke me up and I made it my mission to make sure that startup failure was part of the discussion for mental health. And what I love, what I absolutely love is Techstars. Brad Feld is now starting to talk about how they can add mental health as part of the conversation when companies go through Techstars and adding that as a possible service, like allowing founders to go talk to a counselor about the problems they're faced with. Because as a founder, as a CEO, as someone who goes through this, you really go through it alone. Um, I mean, your friends and family go through it as well, but you really feel as though you're on this island. And so um, so it's a tough conversation to have, but very much an important one. So I'm glad you brought it up. It's funny you mentioned that. because Not funny, I should yeah. say. But it, it, Victoria and I smiled yeah. at each other because it reminded us both at the same time. We did an episode last season with uh, Eric Sever- Severinghouse, who is uh, on the C, I think, chief strategy officer at Spring CM here in Chicago. And that episode was titled, How Do You Navigate the Abyss? And it was very much around the idea of entrepreneur loneliness and how I think he even also said it's like you're on this island and you have no one to talk to. And And just like the lack of transparency about when things are like how as a startup, you know, and as a CEO of a startup or the founder, how it's very hard to necessarily be transparent when you're going through a really rough period. Like you don't want to necessarily put it out there that like you're not doing so well because you don't yeah. want, you know, you don't want that floating around. But at yeah. the same time that, you know, there's this like sort of internal struggle. Oh, yeah. And I was, people would ask me all the time, people that didn't see me in a while, be like, hey, Josh, how are you doing? And I, my response was the same every time. Oh, living the dream. Living the dream, yeah, man. Right. It's amazing. And inside, <laughs> like I, I knew my heart was getting ripped out because right. this baby, this thing that I was so passionate about, was dying, and I couldn't bring it back to life to, to for anything. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that, um, as you mentioned, as you were able to kind of crawl out of that, that it reminded me of as well, is uh, a couple years ago we did an episode um, with Amber Ardolino, who's part of the Hamilton Chicago cast. Uh, she actually just had her last show. Um, but one of the things that came out of that episode was the fact that, you know, performers and you know, performers and entrepreneurs are very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, they are putting their all into yep. what they do. Now, the main difference is someone like her, who's part of the Hamilton cast, she does a show every single night. Now, you go to work every day for your startup, but it's like, it's not necessarily like a public facing thing every single day. And she may have a show where she feels she didn't do so hot. 
or she didn't do her best. She didn't do great. She may have screwed up, you know, like one right. step in the millions of steps she has to remember for that song, for the song and dance sequences. And yep. as much as she takes it to heart, she realizes at the same time it's something she it's not it's not her. Like she put her all into it. It's not her. It's something she created and she can create more. She has to be able to let go of it and come back the next day and do it again. Yep. And I think it's that same mindset here. It's just that you don't think of it as an everyday create and, and let go, create and let go. It's like in your case, what was it, a year and a half that you were running this company? And then it's like, it's like that was performance number one. And yeah. then you, you obviously you feel really bad. But when you crawl out of it is when you realize, hey, that was not my identity. That was not me. I mm-hmm. was part of that thing. I created that thing, but I created it. It's not who Josh is at the end of the day. Yeah, and I'm very proud of what we were able to accomplish in such a short amount of time. Um, but, you know, I, there are things that I wish we could have tried to figure out because there were things in our roadmap that we thought were going to be profoundly valuable. We just never were given a chance to get to that point. And, um, and I think that's what hurts the most because, I, I, again, I think there's a path here where there's a back end as a service that's going to win. You know, I think the anxiety that was created in our particular industry was Parse was bought by Facebook and then was shut down. And so we had to answer that. Even though we weren't part of that, we still had to answer that in investor meetings or customer meetings. Are you guys going to be shut down too if you guys get acquired? Um, Firebase got acquired by Google uh, when originally they were a database as a service and they pivoted as a backend as a service. And so there was a lot of like, well, how are you going to be Google? And so we had to answer that question. And so there was a lot of anxiety around um, backend as a service and there they're just being a temporary component to it. And, and the other part of it is the, the scale. At some point, people were going to move off of our platform because it just wasn't going to be scalable, scalable enough. And so we had answered those questions. So, you know, you have to have a defensible position in your business or it's going to fail. And there's a lot of different reasons a business fails. But, you know, founders uh, are, account for 80% of the failures in startups. And the reason is for what I've outlined here in this program is we didn't um, we didn't pick a lane. We focused on too many things. We didn't have a defensible position that we could easily define. And we had a co-founder that left when we ran out of cash. So there were a lot of things that I could go back and post more on what happened. But at the end of the day, if we would have been very much, very deliberate about our movements and tried to move slower, we may still be around. So... You talked about getting involved in Patriot Boot Camp, first going there as a mentor. Obviously, you have your military veteran experience with the Navy. You're now the interim CEO. How do you, can you talk us through real quick how you got into that position and what you're focused on? Yeah. So, again, when I went to Denver, uh, the Denver Patriot Boot Camp, um, their leader, uh, Charlotte Creech, um, was in the midst of having some attrition herself within her own uh, organization. So she approached me about helping her lead the organization. She knew that Brightwork was winding down. And so it, the timing just fit. And so after February, um, February 1st, she transitioned into a new role. And so I was just brought in as the new CEO. And so, um, yeah, so that's sort of the backstory behind it. Um, I had been going to different Patriot boot camps, first as an attendee, and then coming back as a mentor slash speaker. Um, but it's definitely a community I'm very passionate about. We focus on military veterans and spouses and uh, really focus on tech startups. So we've had 750 companies come through the program. We've done 12 of these. They've collectively raised over $70 million in funding and created over 1,300 jobs. 
uh, in the market. So we're moving the needle uh, slowly but surely and, uh, and just trying to create more programming to add value to these, uh, these founders. Something you mentioned there that I think it's kind of a side note, but I think it's important for people to understand, especially entrepreneurs who are earlier in the game, is you first went to this thing as an attendee, then a mentor, then a speaker, now you're CEO. There's a gradual, and it kind of comes back to the original point, there's a gradual build up there. It's progressive. And I think yeah. there are a lot of people who are wondering why they are not speaking at the conferences today for how great their company is. It takes time. And yeah. you have to go on your journey of like attendee to being at the top of this thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. It takes time. I mean, when I was at Twilio, they were already four years into it and they had 65,000 developers on their platform. And I remember we had a party when we first hit 3 million in like revenue. And looking back, it's funny. I, I, we talked, I talked to earlier employees that just laugh about that because now they're 1,200 employees. They have over a, 2 million people on their platform and they're making an ungodly amount of money, and they've gone IPO, right? So, you know, it just takes time. They've been doing this for ten years now, but it was it was a very slow progress. Like, how are you going to get somebody that knows that there's a phone system out there to realize that you can build a phone system with four lines of code? When I realized that after going through the ten years or so that I was in telecom and realizing that I can make a phone ring with four lines of code, that was just my <laughs> mind was blown, and I was sold. And, um, and so I think that really, um, was the aha moment for me, but it takes time. It takes time for every entrepreneur. And it was on that day that you decided to throw away your like knee pads with little spikes on the side that help you scale a wooden yeah. telephone pole. Yeah. No more would I crawl under a house to run residential phone line. But you know how. You know, that's yeah. cool. I do know how. It's one of those like random like manliness traits. Like. That's right. Yeah. If there's any grandmothers listening, I can help you with your phone line. Now there's a market. Yeah. All right. So, um, where can our listeners learn more about you and get in touch? Yeah, so Patriot Bootcamp is probably the easiest place. Uh, it's patriotbootcamp.org. Um, I'm on Twitter. It's Joshua J. Carter underscore. Uh, but people are free to email me. I'm carter at patriotbootcamp.org. Um, always happy to talk about my journey and hopefully that my mistakes and missteps can somehow lead to value that I bring to founders. So to wrap up, we will go one by one. Uh, based on today's conversation, we'll go one by one and give our respective answers to the topic question for today. The topic question for today was how do you define your audience? We'll start with Victoria, then we'll go to me. Josh, we'll close with you. So Victoria, sure. how do you define your audience? Well, I think based on what we talked about today, um, being being really clear and sort of sticking to one um, more like niche market or audience is is really important in starting out and i think also this sort of coming back to this idea of like taking your time right so josh you mentioned a few times that like you know if you had taken a little bit more time um you know in the process of like really sorting it out before you went full steam ahead in multiple directions that you know you might have been able to better define that audience early on um and sort of raj to your point and instead of like you know trying trying with multiple audiences at once instead trying one out really testing that method, making sure that that audience is the right audience or maybe that they're not and then moving on from there. So yeah, I think it's um, a bit of taking your time and then just being really clear on, on who it is. My answer, how do you define your audience? Well, as uh, one of my mentors told me, you can't be a mile wide and an inch deep. 
So, <laughs> and, and I love that advice. That's great. <laughs> um, start narrow. You can always add more later as you grow, but you cannot start. It's, a, it's, it's like emotionally impossible to have several audiences and decide to start shaving off from there. And then tactically, you know, the companies I work with, what I take them through is an exercise um, where we actually create a, I call it just an audience funnel. So if you picture a funnel on a screen or on a board, it's got layers to it. And this helps define who their audience is down to specific person and like archetype. So the top layer of the funnel is these people. The second layer is have this problem. The next layer down is which makes them feel this way. The last layer is at this time. And then the output of the funnel is therefore they want to feel blank. And what you've created with that, these people, this problem, this feeling, this time, is a specific type of person you're going after with a specific emotional need associated to the problem that exists. And that'll help you really move forward in a targeted way. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And, and I'll simplify it. You know, if you are creating a platform or product or service that you have been pained with, then you are the target. Find other yous, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, we were a digital marketing agency that were building out platforms that um, we just needed to be more efficient, right? So we should have found other digital marketing agencies who we knew were pained with this and focus on those folks. Josh, one last question for you. Yeah. You, ca- you mentioned a couple of times, you're like, I do think there's a market out there for this backend as a service thing. Do you think you got, is there another go in you uh, in uh, a, uh, outside of Patriot? Is there another go in you as a founder? Yeah. You know, I'm 42 years old. I have a teenage kids. Um, I, I don't know if I have the stamina. I, it's really difficult. And that's the key. You have to have stamina. You have to be able to um, sustain this pace that you go. And I look, the thing that I knew I was in trouble was when my, my six-year-old son drew a picture of the family and in my picture I had my laptop like oh. that for me that was the aha moment I need to scale back my workaholic type of ways so I would absolutely love to do another startup it's it is the most amazing challenging frustrating fun process to go through but at some point you have to think about your work-life balance so yes I think there's a something in me that wants to do something else but I, at the end of the day, I, I put my family through all of this just like I did. So dude, I'd have to sit down and make sure that my family was okay as well. Josh Carter, thank you for joining us on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. That wrapped up our conversation. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the best compliment you can give us is a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews help more people find the show. Therefore, more people get to discover their inner awesome. While you're leaving that review, go ahead and subscribe to the show on whatever platform it is you listen, whether that is iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the various other podcasting platforms in which you can find the show. For full show notes, references, and resources from this episode, you can grab it all at discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Also check out our 100-plus episode archive while you're there. whole lot of awesome for you to dig into. That'll do it for this one. Thank you again to our guests for joining. For Victoria Cohen, I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today.
Jamaica. <laughs>